Well, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, North Korea and how uh, the United States can improve conditions in North Korea vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Beijing. Uh, but just to let you guys know before we get started, we, have, uh, we do a lot of these Hill briefings. I know there's some familiar faces out there, but some folks who may not have uh, attended Cato Hill briefings in the past. You can find out about all uh, Cato Hill briefings um, on our website, cato.org. You can also subscribe to uh, Cato Today which is a daily email newsletter that we publish, which highlights some of the research that's coming out of Cato, new books, studies, op-eds, et cetera, as well as gives you a listing of all of our events uh, that is available. to You can subscribe to it uh, by going, to again, to our website, uh, cato.org. Also there you'll find uh, archives of all past events, both on the Hill and at our offices on Massachusetts <coughs> Avenue, so you can watch the, uh, the video recording of this event or, or previous events there. Um, on an unrelated note, we have a uh, we actually have a Hill briefing coming up tomorrow on health care. Obviously, a very very hot issue here on Capitol Hill. Uh, we encourage you to come to that. Uh, but as I said, today's topic is uh, is North Korea and China. Um, we have an excellent panel. We actually have a, a really uh, interesting and new product coming out of the Cato Institute: our nuclear pro proliferation update. Uh, hopefully, you picked up a copy of the latest one uh, on the registration table outside. You can subscribe for that uh, uh, email as well at our website uh, and be sure that you receive one each, uh, each month. I encourage you to do that, and there's, there's some information on that handout there that will tell you just how to do that. Um, our first speaker is uh, Dr. Ted Galen Carpenter. He's the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. Uh, he is the author of eight and editor of ten books on foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, his latest book is entitled Smart Power Toward a Prudent Foreign Policy for America. Uh, Dr. Carpenter is also a contributing editor to the National Interests and serves on the editorial boards of the Mediterranean Quarterly and the Journal of Strategic Studies. Uh, he received his Ph.D. in U.S. Diplomatic History from the University of Texas. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Carpenter. Thank you very much, Brandon. Uh, the prevailing assumption ever since the latest phase of the ongoing soap opera with regard to North Korea's nuclear program, the latest phase that began in the fall of 2002, was that while North Korea would make provocative gestures and be uncooperative from time to time, ultimately Pyongyang would agree to give up its nuclear program in exchange for political and economic concessions from the United States and the other participants in the six-party talks. In other words, the underlying assumption throughout this crisis has been that the six-party talks were likely to succeed. Events uh, this year have cast considerable doubt on that and I think uh, reinforced the pessimism that I've had and a number of other scholars have had over the years. Uh, just this year, North Korea has conducted uh, missile tests, a second nuclear test, and also has stated that its uranium enrichment program has reached the point that it is uh, just about operational. Now, you recall, perhaps, that this is the uranium <coughs> enrichment program that North Korea has denied all along, ever since the U.S. presented intelligence data in the fall of 2002, that it had such a program. Supposedly, this program that never existed is now virtually operational. We've seen a shift in attitude within the foreign policy and journalistic communities in the United States as a result of these developments. 
there was pervasive optimism in the United States and other countries that ultimately we would have a diplomatic solution to the North Korean nuclear problem. Uh, the pessimist camp has been growing in size over the past six or seven months. I might add that shift in sentiment is not confined to the United States. Uh, I'm seeing that in China as well. When I visited China in April of 2008, the dominant view, the overwhelming view, was that North Korea was engaged in hard diplomatic bargaining, in posturing, but ultimately it would agree to a deal. When I visited China again in June of this year, uh, the sentiment was quite different. Although some Chinese scholars and journalists still held the view that North Korea will eventually come around, the majority view was now that the North seems to be determined to build and deploy a nuclear arsenal, that the North apparently has the ambition of becoming uh, akin to the Pakistan of Northeast Asia. In other words, a credible arsenal, perhaps as many as several dozen nuclear weapons over the next, uh, next several years. Now, what can be done about this? Well, the short answer is not a tremendous amount unless we would be willing to roll the dice and use military force. And even the most hawkish uh, factions in the United States seem to back away from that option. Beyond that, economic sanctions are unlikely to work, especially if China is not fully on board. Sanctions without China are going to be ineffectual with regard to North Korea. It may cause the regime some annoyance and inconvenience. The financial sanctions that the U.S. and other members of the Six-Party Talks imposed uh, a couple of years ago certainly caused difficulty for the regime, but not enough to cause it to change course on the nuclear issue. China, on the other hand, has considerable leverage. It provides a, a sizable amount of North Korea's food and energy supplies. But one shouldn't overrate that leverage. Uh, the comment of New York Times columnist Tom Friedman a few years ago that Beijing could end the North Korean nuclear crisis with a telephone call is even more simplistic than most of Tom Friedman's analyses. Without China's active cooperation, though, sanctions certainly will not work. China has leverage, but it is reluctant to use that leverage. Now, why is that? Well, when I was in China on both of these visits, I got occasional comments, especially from older Chinese scholars, that Beijing really can't betray a friend and longtime ally. But that's not a major motive, and it's certainly not with younger Chinese. Uh, most of the younger China, Chinese I encountered had had quite enough of North Korea. It was like no country should be saddled with this as an ally. China's real fears are different, that if Beijing really puts the economic screws to Pyongyang, a number of bad things might happen. For one thing, Kim Jong-il, feeling he has nothing to lose, might do something rash, even launch uh, military operations on the peninsula. Another danger from the perspective of uh, people in China 
is that North Korea could suddenly implode, creating chaos and a massive refugee flow, not just into South Korea, but across the border into China as well. A third danger, even if an implosion did not occur, there could be a, a gradual unraveling of the North Korean state. And that would mean, uh, sooner or later, a united non-communist Korea allied with the United States and with a probable U.S. military presence on the Korean Peninsula, quite possibly up very close to the border with China. Now, I did encounter, particularly on the last visit, some disagreement about the need for a buffer state. Again, some of the younger Chinese rolled their eyes about this and suggested that buffer state concepts were obsolete, that the United States has the capability of striking China, if it ever wanted to do that, from a uh, considerable distance. It didn't need to have forward-deployed uh, forces on the Korean Peninsula, and I, I think that analysis is correct. But Chinese are nervous. They, they feel that a buffer state is a good insurance policy. Uh, I would argue that Kim Jong-il's apparent ill health is likely to reinforce China's reluctance to put pressure on the regime at this point in time. In fact, the default policy option for Beijing is likely to be to just wait and see what a successor regime looks like and perhaps even try to subtly influence that succession and then hope that there is a more reasonable government in Pyongyang, one that will adopt needed economic reforms and be more forthcoming on the nuclear issue. The question is then, if we don't want this problem to just drift along for a number of years until we suddenly have a North Korea with a sizable nuclear arsenal, how do we get China to be more decisive and proactive? I think there are two crucial steps here. First of all, we ought to lay the foundation for shifting, by, by shifting U.S. policy. Right now we're intermittently engaged, mainly through the six-party talks, in a step-by-step -step process. If we make a concession, we expect North Korea to make a concession. I think uh, there's maybe a 50-50 chance that we could actually get a comprehensive settlement on this sometime in the middle of the next century, but we're not making significant progress. Now that we have initiated serious bilateral talks with North Korea, which has been a, a change in U.S. policy, I think we should take the next step, and that is propose a comprehensive bargain. And some elements within the South Korean government seem to have this in mind as well. This bargain would involve a number of concessions from the United States especially. A non-aggression pledge against North Korea. The North Koreans profess to fear that the U.S. might try to engage in forcible regime change. We can assure them that we have no intention of doing that and sign whatever document they might want to that effect a peace treaty to formally end the state of war on the Korean Peninsula, the establishment of full diplomatic relations, and the lifting of most economic sanctions. Now, in exchange, we have to insist on a complete, verifiable, and irreversible end to North Korea's nuclear program. 
and that means a thorough system of on-demand inspections. I think making that proposal is useful if for no other reason that it would smoke Pyongyang out. We would know once and for all if North Korea is considering giving up its nuclear program for any package of concessions. If Pyongyang balked at that comprehensive deal, then I think we have to face the reality that it's virtually certain that North Korea is determined to become a nuclear weapons power. We're still wondering about that. This, I think, would provide needed clarity. Even more important, a proposed comprehensive bargain would convince the Chinese that negotiations with the North are futile and another policy has to be adopted. If Pyongyang refused to go along with this offer, I think even the most loyal Chinese would have to conclude diplomacy is not likely to work. Right now, China does not believe that the United States has gone the extra mile to solve the North Korean nuclear issue through diplomacy. Step two in getting China to be more proactive, perhaps even to try to undermine Kim Jong-il's regime, is to provide sufficient concessions to Beijing. In other words, to drastically alter the incentive structure. My colleague Doug Bandau will cover that issue in his presentation, but I think it's imperative for the United States to shift its policy and to gain some clarity with regard to the North Korean nuclear issue. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ted. Uh, next up is Doug Banda. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he specializes in foreign policy and civil liberties. Uh, prior to joining Cato, he's a special assistant to President Reagan. He was also editor of the political magazine Inquiry. Uh, his writings have been published in newspapers across the country, and he's been a frequent commentator on uh, news programs at ABC, NBC, uh, CNN, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Doug holds a JD from Stanford University. And with that, I will turn things over to Doug. Thanks, Brandon. It's always a pleasure to share a panel with uh, my good friend Ted. <clears throat> and I thank all of you for coming. There's a lot going on in the policy world these days to uh, capture our attention. But the issue of North Korea remains a very important one. You know, in an era of change, uh, you know, the whole question of how to deal with Korea, I think, is very much on the plate. The Bush administration tried different tactics. It tried initially to isolate and ignore North Korea without success, and then it tried to engage North Korea, again, without obvious success. It succeeded in some engagement, but not uh, really getting the results that we wanted. <laughs> the question, then, is what to do today, how to deal with a, uh, what remains uh, perhaps the most serious problem that we face in East Asia. North Korea really poses a unique mix. Number one, it's a brutal, murderous dictatorship. If one looks around the world at bad regimes, North Korea comes out probably on top. Burma might be up there along with it. There are some other competitors, but certainly if one looks at what's happened in North Korea in terms of the internal population, human rights, starvation, you know, this is really one of the worst regimes that we have seen. We find a regime that constantly engages in provocative behavior, uh, the North Koreans clearly believe that brinkmanship is the uh, way to negotiate. 
you know, we see them go back and forth in terms of policies. Earlier this year, we saw nuclear tests, missile tests, basically uh, saying they were tearing up every agreement they had reached with the South Koreans, throwing away the armistice agreement, etc. So it's a regime that one can count on to be provocative. <clears throat> Even uh, with the latest uh, apparent move back towards engagement, this is clearly not a regime that one can trust in terms of positive behavior. We also face the fear of internal instability. Last A year ago, August, uh, the uh, so-called dear leader apparently suffered a stroke, and though he's clearly in much better health, uh, still the long-term prognosis doesn't look good, exactly what follows him is hard to know. Uh, there are reports that he wants his uh, youngest son to be his successor, but then uh, lately it appears there has been less talk of that. His brother-in-law is an important figure. He has a stepbrother over in Poland as ambassador, a number of different family members, the military holds important role. So we don't know what might come. And uh, one could imagine a potentially violent factional struggle in Pyongyang that could be very messy. Uh, South Korean uh, colleagues that I have talked to worry that North Korea has no history of even the kind of collective leadership that the Chinese have managed to come up with. You know, the question of whether we could see a collective leadership come out of Pyongyang, they're not so certain. Very real concern over the role of the military. So all of this plays in that uh, while Kim Jong-il might be an awful ruler for a lot of folks, he does offer at least a certain amount of stability, which makes everyone very nervous whether the deluge will come after his passing. So everyone wants diplomacy to work. We have to recognize, I think, that as we seek to influence North Korea, that North Korea has a lot of very good reasons from their standpoint to want nuclear weapons. Not necessarily for aggressive action, but first for security. If you're afraid of being sold out by your big allies, both of which have recognized South Korea and moved away from you, you're concerned about the United States, you've looked around the world, you understand that the U.S. bombs lots of countries, but it tends not to bomb countries with nuclear weapons. The ultimate security, then, is a possession of nuclear weapons. Far better than a non-aggression pact is to actually have a method to retaliate. Also, the issue of status. Countries with nuclear weapons get treated very differently than countries without them. The potential for extortion. Obviously, uh, you know, having nuclear weapons allows you to bargain and request goodies in return. And also the internal dynamic, where the military plays a major role. Kim Jong-il talks about a military-first policy. Nuclear weapons presumably are an internal bargaining chip with the military itself and may very well be useful in terms of trying to cement your regime and the succession that you want. So all of these things we have to bear in mind as we try to make a deal with North Korea. The price might turn out to be exceedingly high, even if they are willing to bargain it away. We all want a diplomacy, but as Ted indicated, whether or not that's going to be possible, I think uh, increasingly the view is the more provocations we see from North Korea, the less likely we assume that we will get a bargained uh, arrangement. We need to try. but We have to recognize the limitations of diplomacy and negotiation. Sanctions have been tried, and the U.S. would like to push that further, but without the assent of uh, China, both agreeing to them and enforcing them, especially the cutoff of food and energy, of which China is the major supplier, those sanctions are unlikely to have a major impact on North Korean behavior. Any sanctions, of course, are to some degree problematic. A regime willing to allow half a million or more of its people to starve to death, uh, the numbers that we think uh, probably died in the late 1990s, a regime like that is un unlikely to change its behavior dramatically due to outside pressure unless it has absolutely no choice. The only way we're going to get that kind of change would be for have China involved. Military option, as uh, Ted mentioned, is not a good one. I think even limited strikes on North Korea would, are very likely trigger a general war. 
you know, Kim Jong-il very likely would look at this as being in the lead-up to regime change, and if the United States is going to trigger a war from his standpoint, he might as well play the card as opposed to sit and wait for the U.S. to take him out. be extraordinarily risky for the South Koreans in particular, given the role, given uh, the proximity of Seoul to the border and the ability of North Korea to uh, pour scuds and artillery shells into Seoul. So the military is not a very good option. So the question then is, is China an option? Is it possible to enlist China? We all assume that China has the dominant influence, but obviously it's not as dominant as some people, like Mr. Friedman, think. You know, that, and I think even the Chinese may not be certain exactly how dominant their influence is. There's obviously long been tensions between uh, the North Koreans and China over a number of issues. North Koreans have always been very prickly and very independent and have sought to eliminate any foreign influence within their own political system. So China's influence is there, but it has certain limits. There is history and ideology, which certainly ties those countries together, though, as Ted mentioned, that is less important, I think, today than it once was. There are legal and political ties, including a treaty between the two. But I think most important is the perception of Chinese influence or Chinese interest. China, and we have to understand this. We can't dismiss Chinese concerns, but rather we have to basically take them into account. First, China does fear the possibility of a collapse of North Korea. It fears refugee flows. It fears economic costs. It fears instability in the peninsula. It fears what might happen in terms of its own uh, you know, provinces on the, <clears throat> the border, which have a lot of Koreans, both North Koreans, ethnic Koreans, as well as North Korean refugees. All of these are very important issues. Some Americans dismiss them out of hand, but one could imagine how the U.S. would respond to outside powers suggesting similar approach to Mexico. Please adopt policies that might wreck the Mexican government, spur tens of millions of people to flee north, cause armed warfare south of your border, but don't worry about it. It's really not very important. That is not a policy that would likely go over well in Washington. We have to take into account why Beijing may find that policy suggestion to be somewhat problematic. There's a question of economics, that they fear not only a breakdown of North Korea, I think they fear what a united Korea might very well become. United Korea likely would be an economic competitor for them. They fear a united Korea allied with the United States, particularly the geopolitical implications of a united Korea allied with the U.S. militarily. And again, one can argue that they shouldn't care about these sorts of things, but I think the evidence is very significant that they do. So if we want to influence China, we have to take China's perception of its influence into account. <clears throat> I think what we have to do, and I want to emphasize, is convince them. Threats are not likely to work. John McCain and others have basically suggested we should threaten the Chinese. All of our interests, all of our relations, you know, will be at risk. But of course, the U.S. has an enormous amount at stake in its relationship with China, including the development of peaceful relations over the coming century between what is the current superpower and what may become the next superpower. We have an enormous amount at stake. And threatening, if we are concerned about Chinese military spending today, one can imagine what Chinese military spending will be if we spend our time threatening them over various uh, policies. We are not likely to succeed. This is a proud and ancient civilization that's not likely to give us the pleasure of browbeating it in public. I think we're going to have to work on persuasion, diplomacy, and uh, <clears throat> convincing them as opposed to threatening them to get our way. First, it's very important in my view that we work with both uh, South Korea and Japan to forge a united perspective in terms of one, as Ted indicated, a policy towards North Korea to have some kind of a presentation. There are currently differences between the two countries. The South Koreans, I think, have come closer to what Ted indicated in terms of a, 
a real big bang approach, and the U.S. seemed rather, this current administration, rather dismissive. This is something that needs to be worked out. These three countries need to go to the uh, PRC and indicate that we're going to make a very significant diplomatic approach, and it will need Chinese support. What the Chinese need to understand is that we are committed to making diplomacy work. This is a good chance, but it requires them to give it a push in Pyongyang. And they can give it a push certainly by using whatever influence they might have in the North Korean capital, as well as perhaps dropping hints of potential problems with the oil pipeline and such if North Korea is not receptive to negotiating. That uh, <laughs> there's the opportunity to influence North Korea, that will be the moment that China needs to deploy its influence to the extent that it has it in conjunction with an American and allied uh, diplomatic approach. And what the U.S. and its allies also need to do with, North, with uh, China is indicate that if things go badly, you know, if we have to move to sanctions, if there are problems in North Korea, if there's some sort of a collapse, that the allied countries will work with China, number one, in terms of dealing with refugees and the cost of refugees, that this would not be a burden left entirely upon China. Number two, that we would work with China to the extent it had to take steps with its military to secure its own borders and deal with stabilization of the peninsula and uh, talk about economic support over the long term for refugees. All of these should be issues that the U.S. brings forward to Beijing and indicates a willingness to make sure those costs and those problems are not just dumped on Beijing's doorstep and left with Beijing. That if we want China to be of assistance, the U.S. in particular, but also South Korea and Japan, since they have a significant amount at stake as well, need to be willing to work with China. Finally, what the U.S. needs to indicate is that the collapse of North Korea will not be a geopolitical problem for China. Most importantly, the U.S. will not maintain bases or military forces in a united Korea. In my view, there's no need for U.S. forces today. South Korea is quite able to defend itself. Indeed, over the last decade, South Korea has cheerfully sent billions of dollars north in terms of subsidizing North Korea. If you're subsidizing your, uh, the guys to the north of you, you shouldn't be fearing them as a military uh, problem. You certainly shouldn't be expecting other countries to subsidize your defense. But a in a situation of united Korea, there's no cause, in my view, for American forces to be involved. And the promise should be to Beijing that if you work with us and there are problems and North Korea disappears, you get a united Korea, this will not be a base for U.S. military operations. I think this is a very important commitment to make to Beijing that, again, it has a lower geopolitical risk in terms of supporting our policy. Finally, we need to emphasize and, in some sense, share the nightmare of the current policy, which is North Korea is hardly stable today. There is no reason to assume the regime in Pyongyang will survive. We don't know what's going to happen to Kim Jong-il. The possibility of violent uh, factional fighting remains even today. So China cannot count on a soft landing in North Korea. Second is we should indicate that if North Korea goes ahead and builds a sizable arsenal of nuclear weapons, that the U.S. might have to rethink its stance towards South Korea and Japan on having nuclear weapons. That a, you know, an East Asia-dominated, you know, the small state monopoly of nuclear weapons by North Korea is a very unpleasant place. Not entirely clear the U.S. wants to be in the middle of that, so hint, hint, Beijing, you might want to do more. Because you might find that proliferation turns out to be a problem not only for us, but also for you. The goal of that would be to limit, not encourage, proliferation, but China should understand that it cannot assume that the U.S. will uh, stop any further proliferation, but rather proliferation of North Korea might end up posing as significant a problem to Beijing as it poses to the United States, which should give uh, China an added incentive 
to uh, cooperate with the U.S. and other countries in trying to rein in North Korea. In the end, I think we have no good options with North Korea. It's an ugly regime. It has a lot of reasons to want nuclear weapons. But our best hope of having a diplomatic, non-military solution is to enlist China as part of a coordinated process along with South Korea and Japan. We need China's support behind a diplomatic initiative as well as behind sanctions if either of those is going to work. That will require convincing China that it's in its interest to participate as well. Thank you.